Morning. So, you know what the definition of unity in the church is? Nardis came up to me this morning, looked at my shirt and went, and then gave me a hug anyway. So, um, yes, uh, sorry, Chad, for stealing your spot this morning. Um, I do have something I'd really love to share with you this morning. And what I would like to share with you this morning is about the divine mystery. That's a good title, isn't it? The divine mystery. It sounds dramatic. So, when I was a kid, I used to love detective and mystery books. I was all into mystery books. Um, Famous Five, Secret Seven, you've read those, yes? Yeah. Um, and then my mum had this brilliant plan to get me to learn uh, German. Um, I was learning German at the time, and she knew that I was liking the Secret Seven books. So what she did is she said, okay, you're enjoying the Secret Seven books, yes. Well, I've got you the next one. Great. It's in German. It's Die Geheimpolizei Schwarzer Sieben. Yeah, which technically means the secret police, Black Seven, which is like so much more dramatic than the Secret Seven, isn't it? Trust the Germans to come up with that. But so anyway, I had to learn German in order to be able to find out what happened in the next book in the series. It was a brilliant idea. It was totally evil. And then I moved on from there and I went through um, kind of Sherlock Holmes and various other books and things. And I've always loved these mystery books. They always have one similar theme, which is that they're all about uncovering some secret plot or some secret plan. That's what all these mystery books have in common. And uh, I think in truth, the reason why I like them so much is because in my brain as a little boy, I kind of thought that I was one of those detectives. I fancied myself as this kind of this sleuth. And I thought, when I grow up, I'm going to have this really exciting, thrilling life, solving incredibly complex mysteries. Yeah. So I sell software for a living. Yeah. Um, it's not quite as exciting. And most of us probably think that Oh, yeah, I'm an elder in a church. There we go. That's, that's all the, yeah. But in reality, most of us actually have lives where we start off thinking that maybe when we're grown up, we'll be part of some incredible, amazing story of life that will be, you know, heralded through the ages. Books will be written about us. And then we end up selling software or something like that. And we think maybe, actual fact, we're not part of those incredible stories after all. Well, I'm going to suggest something to you this morning. I'm going to suggest that as you're sitting here, you are a central part of the most insane plot, secret plot in the history of the universe. You. And I'm not talking about the New World Order or COVID vaccines or anything like that. I'm talking about the most insane secret plot in the history of the universe, planned before time itself began, and you're part of it. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to tell you about this morning. 
You are an integral part. You're not like, you know, in Star Trek, you get crewman number four, the one you don't know his name, you just see him. And like, as he comes into the scene, you think, he's getting bumped off because he's like incidental to the plot. No, you are the star of this. You're part of the plot. So I'm going to tell you this story of this incredible story in seven chapters. Seven chapters, because seven is the perfect number. Did you know that? Yes. So that's why I chose it. So seven chapters. And the best part is we're already in the last one. We're in the big reveal at the end of the story. So we know exactly how it all unfolds. Colossians 1 verse 26 says this. It says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations is now disclosed in the Lord's people. And let's go back to the beginning. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning Chapter 1, a wonderful start. So, every story has a beginning. This one does too. Um, this one, well, actually, I don't know exactly when it started, if I'm honest, because it actually started before time. So, I don't know how you measure that, but it was a long time ago. Let's, let's say that we're going to go back about 6,027 years, give or take. Okay, 6,027 years ago. That is Genesis. God creates the world. And when he creates the world, it's pretty good. Actually, it's perfect. It's better than pretty good. It's amazing. Even by God's standards, it's perfect. So he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He created, made in God's image. Everything is as it, as it should be. Unfortunately, if you've read mystery books, you know that most mystery books start with some tragedy. Like, you know, someone gets murdered, or it's a plane crash, or something. They normally start with a tragedy, okay? Spoiler, this one does too, okay? So this one starts with a tragedy. We actually get introduced to the baddie right at the beginning, the bad actor, okay? The bad actor here is a rebellious angel called Lucifer. Lucifer wants to mess this story up because he hates God. And so what he does is he tries to target God's perfect creation. He already tried to target God. That didn't work. So it's like, I can't get to God, so I'll get to you. Creation. So you know what happens in Genesis. He tempts the people, Adam and Eve. They fall. And um, in their pride and their striving to be like God, they actually end up rejecting God, rejecting their creator. Yo, downer. That starts pretty flat, doesn't it? People say that Cain was the first murderer in the Bible. I'm going to suggest to you, actually, the first murderer was Satan. Because his lies and deceit caused Adam and Eve to fall, and death came into the world. Okay, they led a very, very long life before dying, but they would never have died if it wasn't for the fact they listened to the lies of the enemy. So this is the lowest point of history right now. But even in this low point of history, if we're going to follow this mystery story, we get clue number one. We get the first clue right here that there's a secret plan in action. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says this. This is um, God talking to Adam. I will put enmity... Sorry. Um, uh, this is between him and Satan. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what's happening here is God is actually talking about something that's going to happen in the future. He's saying, 
He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's a riddle. There's something going on there. It's a secret plan which is going to be revealed many thousands of years later. But there's a hint. There's a glimmer of hope. In all the curse, there is something about, there's a curse, it's terrible, it's awful, but something's happening. Something will happen. Chapter 2. Darkness enters. So now this rebellion that Satan started, it's now gone into full-on carnage. I mean, it's like the world now is chaos. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7 says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Not some of the time, all the time. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. I regret that I've made them. That's hectic. Just think about that. This is like God made something. Imagine you make something, something beautiful, and you go, I regret I made that thing. Would you regret you made your children? I mean, it's like this is hecticness. We're so bad, mankind. <laughs> The God like, is so upset that he made us. He says, you know what I'm going to have to do? There's only one solution. Wipe them out. That's crazy. Thankfully, we know there's a chapter three. So in chapter two, God does wipe out mankind, but he saves Noah and his sons. And even in that, there's another clue. In wiping out Noah and his sons, he's actually saying this is a picture of something that's happening. This is another clue to the mystery that's going to be unre uh, so revealed, unveiled in the future. Listen to this. Genesis 7 verse 16 says this. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. God's doing something. And even in that tragic point, God had a plan. So mankind escapes, skin of their teeth. Just a handful of people. The rest of mankind is wiped out. Chapter 3, scattered abroad. So you'd think after that pretty kind of like messed up beginning, you'd think, oh, well, okay, after the flood, you get the ark. The people come out the ark. It's Noah and his sons. These are the righteous people. You know, there's been a reset in mankind. All those terrible people who did all those terrible things are now being wiped out, drowned, glug, glug, glug. Now we've got the good people. The good people who are going to bring an amazing kingdom of God onto the earth. Guess what happens? Not that. So these people, they come onto the earth and they're like, you know, they, they, they go and multiply. God says, go and fill the earth, spread about, just make this amazing Amazing creation I intended. Now you've got a chance to do it properly. And they go, no, we like it here. Um, we're amazing. We're wonderful. So we're going to show the whole world how wonderful we are. We're going to build a big city. And yeah, um, and those things that you wanted us to do, God, no, we know better. 
So really, mankind didn't really change much, unfortunately. So what happens? God scatters them to the four ends of the earth, um, which is why we have this wonderful nation of South Africa and England and all the rest of these places, so that people are scattered all over the earth. But even in the scattering around the earth, there's another clue. This mystery that's going on behind the scenes, there's another clue there. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we read about um, a man called Abram, the God chooses. So God chooses this man and says something to him. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you get that there's another clue here? He's saying, I'm going to make you a great nation, which is cool. Abraham must have been like, yay, great nation. And he goes, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless everyone through you. Abraham probably didn't know much about what that meant. Honestly, he probably didn't have much of a clue. We know because we've got the Bible, but he didn't have the Bible, so he didn't know. So, then what happens, he's told to sacrifice his son Isaac, the son of, you know, the, the, supposedly the son of the promise, how this is going to go through. So just hold on a second and understand this. And now he's been told, I'm going to make you a nation. This is Isaac, you know, great, wonderful, blessings are going to come. Go kill him. Um, Abraham, to his credit, he says, okay. Um, I'm not sure I'd do that, if I'm honest. But Abraham goes along with it. On the way up the mountain where Isaac is going to be sacrificed, Isaac says, where's the, where's the, the, the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham replies, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It's another clue. There's more clues going on. Obviously, Isaac doesn't get killed, in case you hadn't gathered that. Genesis 22, 10 to 13 says this, then he, that's Abraham, reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Does it sound like something else? Another verse you might know there. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So because of Abraham's obedience in this, so he was going to do what God called him to. God stopped him, gave another sacrifice, and then he repeats a blessing over him. This is just afterwards in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, And um, God says to Abraham, And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. In other words, he's saying, yes, there's something coming. There's a clue. There's something going on. You don't understand, Abraham. Something's going on. It's going to be coming later, but you're going to be part of it. Chapter 4, a coming king. So just for the sake of time, um, I'm going to go forward a couple of years couple of thousand years, and we get to the prophet Isaiah. 
So in the meantime, Abraham's descendants, so they'd become the nation of Israel, um, taken the promised land, so they'd gone into the promised land there. Um, they'd gotten rid of the judges, they'd appointed kings because they wanted a king like everyone else. Um, some of the kings, well, they hadn't gone so well. Um, king David was okay. Some of the others were, were pretty rotten. They'd ended up splitting into two kingdoms, um, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and everything was pretty messed up. These two were constantly at war with the surrounding nations. When they weren't founding the, fighting the surrounding nations, they were fighting each other, right? So we were talking earlier about a beautiful picture of unity, right? Israel and Judah, not that, okay? They are totally not a picture of unity. This wasn't much in the way of justice or peace or anything like that going on. So Isaiah is prophesying into this messed up situation. But Isaiah actually had a message of hope. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4 says this. This is a prophecy. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he'll not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. So this is that clue that was going on. There is something coming here. There is a, a servant, someone to come, a king whose God's spirit is going to be upon them. The Israelites had a name for this guy. What did the Israelites call him? The Messiah. They were waiting for this Messiah. They were waiting eagerly for the Messiah to come for like a thousand years. Now, we don't actually know. One of the great mysteries of the Bible, we don't really know why, is that after the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, you know, Habakkuk and all the rest of it, God, that seems to go quite silent for a few hundred years. And no one really knows why. It's one of the things I'm going to hopefully find out <clears throat> sometime in eternity. But in, during this time of kind of silence from God, the Jews are in this absolute full-on detective mode, kind of like trying to solve this mystery. You see, they've been told that there's this Messiah coming. There's like all these clues to something that's going to happen. And they're ready for this thing. And they're like, where is this Messiah? When is he coming? What is he going to look like? I don't think they missed much, if I'm honest. I think they actually were pretty good at trying to kind of follow these clues and, and try and look and see. And they, they studied the scripture and they sliced and they diced it. They were pretty thorough. <clears throat> And into this moment where they're looking for this, this Messiah to come, there's a man born that has this incredible knowledge and power. So the Jews are like, wow, this guy, he's kind of special. Does he match the clues that we've got of this great mystery that we know up till now? In Matthew 13, verse 54, look at how the Jews reacted to this man, to Jesus. They said this. 
Coming to his hometown, that's Jesus coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. You know what? I'm just looking at this going, light bulb moment, bing, like, wow, they've got it. They've got it. They've seen him. They've seen the Messiah. They've realized this is the answer to all the clues. All the detectives of the day must have been going, yes, the mystery is solved. Like, you think, yes, that's it. It's brilliant. I, now, surely, this is going to be an incredible, amazing reveal, and this will be the end of the story, yes? Matthew 13, verses 55 to 57. They then said this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. So you understand, this should have been the big reveal. The detectives of the day found this guy, were like, this is him, but it's not. It can't be him, because we know him. You might think that's surprising. I mean, I don't know about you, but I sometimes look at the New Testament of where the Jews say these things, and I just, how could you not see it? Well, that's because I've got the benefit of hindsight, and they didn't. And there's something else as well. God actually didn't want them to get it. Scary, I know. But it actually says in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, he said, Go and tell the people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of these people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with, hear with, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Because here's the, the reality of the situation. The mystery still had to be revealed. And they weren't ready for it. For then, it was only the disciples who had some idea of who Jesus really was. And you know what? The disciples didn't have a good picture. They had like a bit of an idea to be revealed later. Chapter 6, the answer arrives. Finally, we start to get our answers. Finally, the most momentous moment in history. Literally, the foundations of the earth are about to shake. Literally. So that first part of the clue in Genesis is now comes to pass. Jesus hangs there on cross, nailed there by the Jews, the very people that he'd chosen as his own. They crucify him. There's a moment of total rejection, total humiliation, and Satan strikes Jesus. And so that first clue comes to pass. As Satan strikes Jesus, and finally, he thinks he's killing the creator of the universe. Death comes to Jesus. I think, to be honest, to the disciples, they didn't fully know what was going to happen. They probably thought that Satan had got the victory. Because they were terrified. All seems lost. It seems like this wasn't in the script. You know, as Simon Peter said, surely not you. This isn't in the script. And yet in that moment of darkness, total darkness, there's this flicker of light. This flicker of light, something happens. There's a light that flickers that even death itself cannot extinguish. 
The second part of that prophecy in Genesis comes to pass. Satan strikes Jesus, but Jesus then crushes Satan's head. Acts 2, 22, 24. It tells us that this was the plan all along. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This was the secret plan all along. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus rises from the dead, crushes Satan's heel, and then that second part of that prophecy is fulfilled. The plan's complete. The sacrifice is made. The sacrifice is worthy. And if there was any doubt before, suddenly Satan, in that moment of resurrection, realizes the mystery is solved. And he's lost. But that's not the end of this ultimate mystery story. You see, I said that you sitting here were a part of the story, right? That's how I sold it to you at the beginning. And so far, what I've told you about is the story of Jesus. Because the prophecies that were, I've told you about, the clues that were there in history, in reality, they're not just about the Messiah. They're also about the people that will belong to the Messiah. It's about you and me. Chapter 7, the big reveal. The big reveal. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. This is Paul writing. Paul knew that this was a mystery story all along. Now listen to this. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The actual answer to this mystery story, yes, it's Jesus, but through Jesus, it's you and it's me. Because did you know we're the Gentiles? Though all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham, we are those nations of the earth that are blessed through Abraham. Through Jesus, descended from Abraham, who went to the cross and died for us, this here is the fulfillment of that mystery. You and me. Paul goes on, Ephesians 3, 7 to 9, it says this. Ephesians 3, 7 to 9, it says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. This is what we're supposed to do. This is why we're here. 
We are here to be a part of this mystery and shake the foundations of the heavenlies. Listen to this, Ephesians 3, 10 to 13. That was the previous one. Thank you, Caleb. Ephesians 3, 10 to 13 says this. His intent, that's God's intent. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Understand that. Do you get this? Every mystery story has a big reveal. Do you understand how you are part of this big reveal? You're, you are part of the church, which is actually shaking the foundations. It's a revelation to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. What we're doing here in George actually has eternally foundational shaking effects right here. That's our job. This is church. In the video series that we've just started, Andrew said something pretty hectic, I think, in that first session. He said this. He said that the church is as important in the story of salvation as Jesus going to the cross was. And I heard that, and I must admit, part of me went, Ooh, Andrew, that's a pretty crazy thing to say. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know what? It's true. Salvation is accomplished in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's only through Jesus that we can have salvation. But how is anyone going to know about Jesus? And how is anyone going to be able to walk out their salvation if it wasn't for the church telling people the gospel, and actually living the gospel to each other and to those around. So yeah, I agree with Andrew. Although that shook me, I agree. I do believe that we as the church are just as important in the story of salvation as Jesus going to the cross was. Because as it says here, our job is to make plain to everyone, Paul's words, to make plain to everyone the administration of the mystery. In other words, it's our job to make clear to everybody the gospel and how the gospel works out in our lives. And that's why you're here. You see, God planned the place and the timing of you being here. In George, on the 10th of September, 2023, at 1055 God planned you to be here. He did. Because we're doing church. We're having fellowship. And this is what we are called to do. And this is something which we need to take further. This is something that we need to understand in the depth of our being. And as we go through this video series with Andrew, we're going to learn how to apply it in a different way. A richer way. A deeper way. For Renee and I, we're in the situation right now. We've been in George what? Eight months? Yeah, shrug. Eight months. Eight months we've been here. We know God called us here. We're getting kicked out of our house. We need to find another one. 
It's stressful. But you know what I'm saying to God? I'm having a conversation with him. And I just say to him, look, you're building your church. You meant us to be here. So I'm just trusting you. You're going to make a way for this. Because this is what we're doing. This is our purpose. Yes, I may be a software engineer, but as Chad so rightly pointed out at the start, my calling is not as a software engineer. My call is just to serve the body of Christ. And that should be the calling of every single one of us. And so, honestly, <laughs> I honestly don't even know what house Renee and I are going to be in in six weeks' time. I don't have a clue. I don't know if we're buying, we're renting. I don't know what we're going to do. All I know is God brought us here, so he's going to come through. And so whatever you're facing and wherever you're at in life right now, just know God has called you to be part of his incredible mystery story, which is going to be revealed throughout the ages, and you are part of it, and you have a purpose and a plan right now for every single one of us. But that's only your story. If you've understood the first part of the mystery, which is that Jesus died to save you. Church is a beautiful thing. It's an incredible thing. It's what I, it's what I live for. Church is made up of people who have given their lives to Jesus and are living full out for him. It's an incredible, incredible thing to be part of. But to play your part in it, you need to know Jesus for yourself. That's the way this works. This is the mystery revealed, is that Jesus died for those who would come to him. Who say, you know what? This story that started off at creation with the rebellion of man, that you and I and every single one of us are part of, there is a purpose and a plan in being renewed and restored to God to be part of this incredible church to shake the heavenlies. But if we're still standing in rebellion and we're not yet experiencing what God has for us individually, we can't even start to be part of truly of this thing that we call church and do it together. So I'm, I'm finished with what I wanted to say. And I wanted to encourage you that you're part of this incredible mystery. But in, before I actually close off, I do want to say this is an opportunity right now to do two things. Number one, it's, a part, it's an opportunity to rededicate yourself to this thing that we call church. To understand the part that you play, prophesied from before the world began that you would be here right now to be part of this thing. But it's an opportunity for something else. It's an opportunity if you've never, ever experienced what it means to give your life to Jesus and to enter into this beautiful thing we're doing together. It's your opportunity right now to do that. And I don't want to move from this place before I've given you an opportunity to respond to that as well. Can we do that? Is that good? So what I'm going to ask for is this. Firstly, I just want to ask if, if you're willing 
as a church, as a body, all of us, if you're willing to do this thing together, if you're willing to take your place in this beautiful journey and story, can I just ask you to stand with me?